Chapter 11 of Discoveries Among the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jane Bennett, Melbourne, Australia. Discoveries Among the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon by Austin Layard. Chapter 11, Part 1. Preparations for a journey to the Chabur. Sculptures discovered there. Sheikh Sutum. His rediff. Departure from Mazul. First encampment. Abu Hamira. A storm. Tel Erma. A stranger. Tel Jamal. The chief of Tel Afer. A sunset in the desert. A Jabur encampment, the belled Sinjar, the Sinjar hill, Merkan, Bukra, the dress of the Yezidis, the Shomal, Osafa, Aldina, return to the belled, a snake charmer, journey continued in the desert, Rishwan, encampment of the Baraj, dress of Arab women, Rathaya, a deputation from the Yezidis, Arab encampments, the Habur, Muhammad Amin, arrival at Arban. I had long wished to visit the banks of the Habur. This river, the Chaboris of the Greek geographers, and the Habur or Chebar of the Samaritan captivity, rises in the north of Mesopotamia and flowing to the west of the Sinjar hill, falls into the Euphrates, near the site of the ancient city of Carchemish, or Circesium, still known to the Bedouins by the name of Carcassia. As it winds through the midst of the desert, and its rich pastures are the resort of wandering tribes of Arabs, it is always difficult of access to the traveller. It was examined for a short distance from its mouth by the expedition under Colonel Chesney, but the general course of the river was imperfectly known, and several geographical questions of interest connected with it were undetermined previous to my visit. With the Bedouins, who were occasionally my guests at Mazul or Nimrod, as well as with the Jabur's, whose encamping grounds were originally on its banks, the Habur was a constant theme of exaggerated praise. The richness of its pastures, the beauty of its flowers, its jungles teeming with game of all kinds, and the leafy thickness of its trees, yielding an agreeable shade during the hottest days of summer, formed a terrestrial paradise, to which the wandering Arab eagerly turned his steps when he could lead his flocks thither in safety. My old friend Sheikh Mohammed Amin, who had pitched his tents on the river, having invited me to visit him and sent me word that two colossal idols, similar to those of Nimrod, had suddenly appeared in a mound by the riverside, I did not hesitate, but determined to start at once for the Habur. As the Shamar Bedouins were scattered over the desert between Mosul and the Habur, and their horsemen continually scoured the plains in search of plunder, it was necessary that we should be protected, 
and accompanied by an influential chief of the tribe. I accordingly made arrangements with Sittim, a sheikh of the Baraj, one of the principal branches of the Shamar, whose tents were at that time pitched between the river and the ruins of El Hadar, and, punctual to his appointment, he brought his camels to Mazil on the 19th of March. He was accompanied by Choraif, his redif, as the person who sits on the dromedary behind the principal rider is called by the Bedouins. Amongst the two great nomad tribes of the Shamar and Anetha, the word redif frequently infers a more intimate connection than a mere companionship on a camel. It is customary with them for a warrior to swear a kind of brotherhood with a person not only not related to him by blood, but frequently even of a different tribe. Two men connected by this tie are inseparable. They go together to war, they live in the same tent, and are allowed to see each other's wives. They become, indeed, more than brothers. Choraif was of the tribe of the Anasa, who have a deadly feud with the Shamar, and was consequently able to render equal services to any of his old or new friends who might fall into each other's hands. It is on this account that a warrior generally chooses his rediff from a warlike tribe with which he is at enmity, for if taken in war, he would then be dachil, that he is protected by the family, or rather particular, set of his companion. On the other hand, should one of the Rediff's friends become the prisoner of the sub-tribe into which his kinsman has been adopted, he would be under its protection, and could not be molested. He rides when travelling on the naked back of the animal, clinging to the hinder part of the saddle, his legs crouched up almost to his chin, a very uncomfortable position for one not accustomed from childhood to a hard seat and a rough motion. As our desert trip would probably last for more than two months, during which time we should meet with no villages or permanent settlements, we were obliged to take with us supplies of all kinds, both for ourselves and the workmen. Consequently, flour, rice, burgle, prepared wheat to be used as a substitute for rice, and biscuits formed a large portion of our baggage. Various luxuries such as sugar, coffee, tea and spices, with robes of silk and cotton, and red and yellow boots, together with baskets, tools for excavating, tents and working utensils formed the rest of our baggage. As it was my intention to explore any ruins of importance that we might see on our way, I chose about fifty of my best Arab excavators, and twelve Tiari or Nestorians to accompany us. They were to follow on foot, but one or two extra camels were provided, in case any were unable from fatigue to keep up with the caravan. After the usual noise and confusion in settling the loads on the camels and such matters, about midday the caravan got ready to set out. I did not leave the town until nearly an hour and a half after the caravan, to give time for the loads to be finally adjusted and the line of march to be formed. When we had all assembled outside the Sinjar gate, 
our party had swollen into a little army. The doctor, Mr. Cooper, and Mr. Hormuz de Razam, of course, with other friends, accompanied me. Thirteen or fourteen Bedouins had charge of the camels, so that with the workmen and servants, our caravan consisted of nearly a hundred well-armed men, a force sufficient to defy almost any hostile party with which we were likely to fall in during our journey. Hussein Bey, the Yezidi chief, and many of our friends, as it is customary in the East, rode with us during part of our first stage, and my excellent friend, the Reverend Mr. Ford, an American missionary then resident in Mazul, passed the first evening under our tents in the desert. Sutton, with his rediff, rode a light fleet dromedary, which had been taken in a plundering expedition from the Anasa. Its name was Dwyla. Its high and picturesque saddle was profusely ornamented with brass bosses and nails. Over the seat was thrown the Baghdad double bags, adorned with long tassels and fringes of many-coloured wools, so much coveted by the Bedouin. The sheikh had the general direction and superintendence of our march. The Mesopotamian desert had been his home from his birth, and he knew every spring and pasture. He was of the Saadi, one of the most illustrious families of the Shammar, and he possessed great personal influence in the tribe. His intelligence was of a very high order, and he was as well known for his skill in Bedouin intrigue as for his courage and daring in war. In person, he was of middle height, of spare habit but well made, and of noble and dignified carriage, although a musket wound in the thigh from which the ball had not been extracted gave him a slight lameness in his gait. His features were regular and well proportioned, and of that delicate character so frequently found amongst the nomads of the desert, a restless and sparkling eye of the deepest black spoke the inner man, and seemed to scan and penetrate everything within its ken. His dark hair was plaited into many long tails. His beard, like that of the Arabs in general, was scanty. He wore the usual Arab shirt and over it a cloak of blue cloth, trimmed with red silk and lined with fur, a present from some pasha, as he pretended, but more probably a part of some great man's wardrobe that had been appropriated without its owner's consent. He was the very picture of a true Bedouin sheikh, and his liveliness, his wit, and his singular powers of conversation, which made him the most agreeable of companions, did not belie his race. The Bayraktar had the general management of the caravan, superintending with untiring zeal and activity the loading and unloading of the animals, the pitching of the tents and the night watches, which are highly necessary in the desert. As we wound slowly over the low rocky hills to the west of the town of Mosul, in a long straggling line, our caravan had a strange and motley appearance. Europeans, Turks, Bedouins, town Arabs, Tiyari, and Yazidis were mingled in singular confusion. 
each adding, by difference of costume and a profusion of bright colours, to the general picturesqueness and gaiety of the scene. The Tigris, from its entrance into the low country at the foot of the Kurdish mountains near Jazirah to the ruined town of Tekrit, is separated from the Mesopotamian plains by a range of low limestone hills. We rode over this undulating ground for about an hour and a half, and then descended into the plain of Zerga, encamping for the night near the ruins of a small village. There is now scarcely one permanent settlement on the banks of the Tigris from Jazeera to the immediate vicinity of Baghdad, with the exception of Mosul and Tekrit. One of the most fertile countries in the world, watered by a river navigable for nearly 600 miles, has been turned into a desert and a wilderness by continued misgovernment, oppression and neglect. The loads had not yet been fairly divided amongst the camels, and the sun had risen above the horizon before the Bedouins had arranged them to their satisfaction and were ready to depart. The plain of Zerga was carpeted with tender grass, scarcely yet forward enough to afford pasture for our animals. Scattered here and there were tulips of a bright scarlet hue, the earliest flower of the spring. A ride of three hours and a quarter brought us to a second line of limestone hills, the continuation of the Tel Arfa and Sinjar range, dividing the small plain of Zerga from the true Mesopotamian desert. From a peak which I ascended to take bearings, the vast level country stretching to the Euphrates lay a map beneath me, dotted with mounds, but otherwise unbroken by a single eminence. The nearest and most remarkable group of ruins was called Abu Khamira, and consisted of a lofty, conical mound, surrounded by a square enclosure or ridge of earth, marking, as at Kuyangjik and Nimrod, the remains of ancient walls. Eight or ten of my workmen under a Christian superintendent had for some days been excavating in the ruins of Abu Hamira. I therefore ordered the tents to be pitched near the reedy stream and galloped to the mounds which were rather more than a mile distant. In general plan, the ruins closely resemble those of Mokamur in the Thai country. The workmen had opened deep trenches and tunnels in several parts of the principal ruin and had found walls of sun-dried brick, unsculptured alabaster slabs and some circular stone sockets for the hinges of gates, similar to those discovered at Nimrod. The baked bricks and the pieces of gypsum and pottery scattered amongst the rubbish bore no inscriptions and nor could I, after the most careful search, find the smallest fragment of sculpture. I have no hesitation, however, in assigning the ruins to the Assyrian period. One of those furious and sudden storms which frequently sweep over the plains of Mesopotamia during the spring season burst over us in the night, while incessant lightnings broke the gloom, a raging wind almost drowned the deep roll of the thunder. The united strength of the Arabs could scarcely hold the flapping canvas of the tents. Rain descended in torrents, sparing us no place of shelter. 
Towards dawn, the hurricane had passed away, leaving a still and cloudless sky. When the round, clear sun rose from the broad expanse of the desert, a delightful calm and freshness pervaded the air, producing mingled sensations of pleasure and repose. The vegetation was far more forward in that part of the desert traversed during the day's journey than in the plain of Zerga. We trod on a carpet of the brightest verdure, mingled with gaudy flowers. On all sides of us rose lofty Assyrian mounds, now covered with soft herbage, these seen from a great distance, and the best of landmarks in a vast plain, guide the Bedouin in his yearly wanderings. Tel Erna, the mound of the spears, had been visible from our tents, rising far above the surrounding ruins. As it was a little out of the direct line of march, Sutton mounted one of our led horses, and leaving Koraif to protect the caravan, rode with me to the spot. The mound is precisely similar in character to Abu Khamira and Mokhamur, and like them stands within a quadrangle of earthen walls. I was unable to find any inscribed fragments of stone or brick. While I was examining the ruins, Sutton, from the highest mound, had been scanning the plain with his eagle eye. At length it rested upon a distant moving object. Although with a telescope I could scarcely distinguish that to which he pointed, the sheikh saw that it was a rider on a dromedary. He now, therefore, began to watch the stranger with that eager curiosity and suspicion always shown by a Bedouin when the solitude of the desert is broken by a human being of whose condition and business he is ignorant. Sutton soon satisfied himself as to the character of the solitary wanderer. He declared him to be a messenger from his own tribe, who had been sent to lead us to his father's tents. Mounting his horse, he galloped towards him. The Arab soon perceived the approaching horseman, and then commenced on both sides a series of manoeuvres practised by those who meet in the desert, and are as yet distrustful of each other. I marked them from the ruin as they cautiously approached, now halting, now drawing nigh, and then pretending to ride away in an opposite direction. At length, recognising one another, they met, and having first dismounted to embrace, came together towards us. As Sutton had conjectured, a messenger had been sent to him from his father's tribe to say that their tents would be pitched in three or four days beneath the Sinjar Hill. From this spot, the old castle of Tel Affair, standing boldly on an eminence about ten miles distant, was plainly visible. Continuing our march, we reached towards evening a group of mounds known as Tel Jamal and pitched in the midst of them on a green lawn, enamelled with flowers, that furnished a carpet for our tents unequalled in softness of texture or in richness of colour by the looms of Kashmir. The tents had scarcely been raised when a party of horsemen were seen coming towards us. As they approached our encampment, they played the jerit with their long spears, galloping to and fro on their well-trained mares. 
They were the principal inhabitants of Tel Afer, with Ozer Aka, their chief, who brought us a present of lamb's flour and fresh vegetables. The Aka wrote on a light chestnut mare of beautiful proportions and rare breed. His dress, as well as that of his followers, was singularly picturesque. His people are Turkomans, a solitary colony in the midst of the desert, and although their connection with the Bedouins has taught them the tongue and the habits of the wandering tribes, yet they still wear the turban of many folds and the gay flowing robes of their ancestors. They allow their hair to grow long and to fall in curls on their shoulders. As the evening crept on, I watched from the highest mound the sun as it gradually sank in unclouded splendour below the sea-like expanse before me. On all sides, as far as the eye could reach, rose the grass-covered heaps marking the site of ancient habitations. The great tide of civilization had long since ebbed, leaving these scattered wrecks on the solitary shore are those waters to flow again, bearing back the seeds of knowledge and of wealth that they have wafted to the west? We wanderers were seeking what they had left behind, as children gather up the coloured shells on the deserted sands. At my feet there was a busy scene, making more lonely the unbroken solitude which reigned in the vast plain around, where the only thing having life or motion were the shadows of the lofty mounds as they lengthened before the declining sun. Above three years before, when watching the approach of night from the old castle of Tel Afer, I had counted nearly one hundred ruins. Now, when in the midst of them, no less than double that number were seen from Tel Jamal. Our tents crowning the lip of a natural amphitheatre, bright with flowers, Ozer Arka and his Turkomans, seated on the greensward in earnest talk with the Arab chief, the horses picketed in the long grass, the Bedouins driving home their camels for the night's rest, the servants and grooms busied with their various labours, such was the foreground to a picture of perfect calm and stillness. In the distance was the long range of the Sinjar hills, furrowed with countless ravines, each marked by a dark purple shadow, gradually melting into the evening haze. We had a long day's march before us to the village of Sinjar. The wilderness appeared still more beautiful than it had done the day before. The recent storm had given new life to a vegetation, which, concealed beneath a crust of apparently fruitful earth, only waits for a spring shower to burst as if by enchantment through the thirsty soil. Here and there grew patches of a shrub-like plant with an edible root, having a sharp, pungent taste like mustard, eaten raw and much relished by the Bedouins. Among them lurked game of various kinds. Troops of gazelles sprang from the low cover and bounded over the plain. The greyhounds coursed hares. The horsemen followed a wild boar of enormous size and nearly white from age, and the doctor, who was the sportsman of the party, shot a bustard, with a beautiful speckled plumage and a ruff of long feathers around its neck. We rode in a direct line to the belled Sinjar, the residence of the governor of the district. There was no beaten track, 
and the camels wandered along as they listed, cropping as they went the young grass. The horsemen and footmen, too, scattered themselves over the plain in search of game. War songs were chanted, and general hilarity prevailed. The more sedate Bedouin smiled in contempt at these noisy effusions of joy, only worthy of tribes who have touched the plough, but they indulged in no less keen, though more suppressed, emotions of delight. Even the tiari caught the general enthusiasm and sung their mountain songs as they walked along. End of chapter 11, part 1